one announcement, we do not have service tonight because it is Memorial Day weekend, and Memorial Day is clearly one of our most important national holidays. It's our most somber, uh, but it is, uh, I believe, one of the be, to be the most important because it's the time that we remember the great sacrifices of those who died in battle uh, securing our, our freedoms. Of course, there's coming a day when the, the swords will be melted into plowshares and the new heavens and the new earth. There will be no need for police. There will be no need for the military. But until then, we thank God for his common grace in raising up men and women uh, to secure our earthly uh, protections. And, and so Memorial Day weekend is an important time for all of us to remember the great sacrifices that have been offered so that we could gather here this morning without uh, concern for government intrusion or any other kind of uh, limitations to our liberties. So as we come uh, to Ephesians 6, I want us to just take a moment to thank the Lord for our uh, armed forces and all of those who have, who have given their lives for us. And, uh, and then we will get into our, our passage this morning. Father, thank you for Memorial Day that we can take this moment, uh, something that we take for granted often, and just remember the men and women uh, in our armed forces who have uh, sacrificed their lives so that we might have earthly freedoms. But Lord, we are even reminded uh, in that, that there is a greater freedom that has been secured by a greater sacrifice. But Father, we do want to pray for the families of those as well who uh, have lost their loved ones so that we might have our liberties today. We pray for the peace of Christ on them. We pray the gospel would heal uh, any wounds that are there. But we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to our, to our country. We don't deserve it. Uh, it is your grace. It is your mercy. It is your goodness. And we thank you. We thank you as well for uh, the reality of freedom that we have not just physical, material freedom, but spiritual freedom that we have in the one who, who took the curse, redeeming us from the curse, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the one we celebrate this morning, even as we remember all of those who went before us, uh, who, who sacrificed a great deal for us. Father, we pray today as we come into this passage in Ephesians 6, that we could come to a better understanding of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us as we consider the warfare that each one of us are engaged in as believers. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would look with me in Ephesians 6, Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The word schemes there is Methodia, methods. He has methods, and those is plural, not just one. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Amen. 
Every year, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary campus police have active shooter training on campus. And so the goal is to prepare all the employees and the police themselves for potential attack. And so they assigned someone to disguise as a shooter and enter one of the buildings. Of course, the police and the employees are notified ahead of time, lest someone use real weapons. But it's still intense. And in December of 2017, I was assigned to be the perpetrator. And so they dressed me in a mask. They gave me an Uzi that shoots blanks and an air pistol that shoots 400 feet per second. And I took over the library. And employees, and your own Charles Loader was one of those employees, were commanded to go through proper protocol by reporting the issue to the police, running and hiding. And I can tell you, Charles is the fastest guy in the library. <laughs> Thank you. And then the police came uh, to save the day by chasing me down in the library, cornering me and, and shooting me with their air rifles. Now, I, I came away from that event quite bruised. Um, I wasn't hurt, but I was bruised from those air rifles. But I came away even more grateful for the police. I came away grateful for the police because of the sacrifices they make uh, to keep us safe and all the preparation that's involved in keeping us safe. Now, in light of the recent events in our country uh, where groups like Antifa uh, encourage violence, all of us, perhaps better than any time in our history, are aware of the importance of preparing for those kind of attacks. But the Apostle Paul would submit to you there's a more important, more dangerous, and more certain kind of attack than the mere physical attack of, of humans. It's the daily attack on every Christian that stems from the reality of spiritual warfare. Now, spiritual warfare is a theological term that's used to describe the persistent battle between the church, the devil, and his angels. Now, admittedly, that term, spiritual warfare, is not found in the Bible. Evidently, that term was coined for the first time in 1970 by Michael Harper in his book, Spiritual Warfare. So even though the term is not found in the Bible, the concept is. The command to resist the, the principalities and powers are pervasive in the New Testament. For instance, in James 4, James writes to the church, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He is certain that every Christian has the divine resources to resist the devil. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, stand firm in the faith. Indeed, as Ephesians lays it out, there is an inevitability to this struggle given the purposes of God, these glorious purposes that are clearly laid out in the first five and a half chapters of Ephesians. Of course, we've seen that the highlight of Ephesians, the main point of Ephesians is Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, where Paul says the mystery revealed to him is God's purpose to sum up all things in heaven and on earth, in Jesus Christ. Essentially, in Jesus Christ, God is bringing this 
curse-stained world back to the main point for which he created it in the first place. He is reversing the curse as far as the curse resides. He is making all things new in Jesus Christ. He is creating a temple by which his priest king will rule and reign. And so this is signaled ultimately in the reality that Jesus Christ died on the cross, took our judgment, and was raised from the grave and was exalted to the right hand of the Father and all things, Ephesians 1.22 tells us, were placed underneath his feet. All things were brought in submission to Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, exhibit A of that reality is that we who were enslaved to the principalities and powers, Ephesians 2, have been delivered. He has saved us by his grace. He has delivered us from the world, the flesh, and the prince of the power of the air. And now as the people redeemed, the church, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility, Paul says in Ephesians 3.10, to demonstrate the wisdom of God in his saving plan. Now, how do we demonstrate the wisdom of God in his saving plan to the rulers and the authorities and the powers of darkness? How do we do that? Well, Paul says we do it, and he uses a verb that's very important in Ephesians. We do it by our walk. Uh, the walk uh, is just a metaphor Paul uses to describe the Christian life. He uses that verb five times in Ephesians 4 to 6. So the first time he uses it in, is in Ephesians 4, 1, where he says that we are to walk worthy of the calling. What is the calling? The calling that we have in Jesus Christ to Jesus Christ by grace through faith. We're to walk worthy of the calling. In Ephesians 4.17, he says that we're no longer to walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. In Ephesians 5 verse 2, we are to walk in love. And so we are to be known by our cruciform agape love. In Ephesians 5.8, we are to walk as children of light. In Ephesians 5.15, he says, we are no longer to walk as unwise, but as wise people of God. And so Paul says the way we demonstrate that Jesus Christ indeed has emerged victorious over the grave is by our transformed new creation walks. Not only does that demonstrate what Jesus has accomplished, it serves as an instrument by which his accomplishment comes to bear on sinners. And so as unbelievers, as the world sees our transformed walks, it compels them to our Christ. In all of this, Paul says at the end of Ephesians, all of this takes place within the context of spiritual warfare and of a devil who does not come except to kill, steal, and destroy. That's the context of our calling. We are in a combat zone, and it's being fought in our living rooms, in our kitchens, our businesses, our neighborhoods, our schools. Indeed, it's being fought in every Christian church. As one 16th century scholar, John Calvin, wrote, the life of a Christian is a perpetual warfare. For whoever gives himself to the service of God will have no truce from Satan at any time. We will have no truce from Satan at any time. Indeed, this is the point. Paul is saying we are helpless to fight this battle in and of ourselves. But he's going to show us in this passage, we're going to look over at this passage this week, next week, and the following. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ by our union in Jesus Christ by grace through faith. Well, that brings us to the first point of this passage in verse 10. Our adequacy 
in the warfare, our adequacy in the warfare. Notice in verse 10, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So that word finally signals the beginning of the conclusion of Ephesians, if that makes sense. He's to his final point. Everything he's been saying up to now is going to come to a head with this passage. This is the beginning of the end of Ephesians. And he says, finally, be strong. Now, that word be strong is in the passive voice. And it could be translated, in, and I know the Christian Standard Bible translates it this way, be strengthened. Be strengthened or be made strong. In other words, this is an inherent strength. Uh, when, if you're an athlete, you, you, can, you can draw on your inherent strength to, to, to play the game, to fight the battle. But Paul's going to make this clear, even by his grammar here, that this is not inherent strength. He says, be strong in the Lord. And the Lord here is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it's also in the present tense. He says, be strong. What does that tell you? That tells you the battle never subsides. Spiritual battle is always present. It's always prevalent. But in this battle, in the Lord, we have ever-present supply. Be strong. Be always strong. Be ever strong. Be ever strengthened in the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, Paul would have been well aware, being a student of the Old Testament, he would have been very aware that his language was rooted in the Old Testament, and it normally came when the people of God were in a pickle, when they were in helpless straits. So, for example, uh, when we studied Exodus, we remember this, when Moses um, has the people between the Red Sea that looks insurmountable and the most dangerous, powerful army in the world, the Egyptians, who are converging on them. What does Moses say in that circumstance? In Exodus 14, 13, fear not, stand firm. Again, we're going to see that verb stand in this passage three or four times. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. What is Israel to do? They're just to stand firm. There was nothing they would do. It would be the Lord who would bring, and he says, which I am working for you. Uh, or 2 Chronicles 20 in that very famous account where the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Meonites came against Jehoshaphat and the people of, of Judah. And I love these words from Jehoshaphat. It's such a wonderful prayer. I have prayed this prayer more than once. And it's likely, if you have read 2 Chronicles 20, you have prayed this prayer more than once. Jehoshaphat said, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? I can't imagine a more simple but profound prayer than that. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's my prayer for Fisherville in this season of transition. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And then the Lord answered his prayer. The Spirit of the Lord came on Jehazel. And Jehazel said these words in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 15, because God answers the prayers of his people. Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Listen, King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Verse 17, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. What was Israel called to do in this case? To stand and to see. Or, later on in 2 Chronicles, Sennacherib, uh, the king of Assyria, comes against King Hezekiah and, and Judah. Again, they're in a pickle. And what does Hezekiah say? By the inspiration of the Spirit, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid 
are dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. Of course, the Assyrians at the time were one of the most powerful and dangerous and evil armies in the world. For there are more with us than with him. I love that language. There are more with us. Now, they were outnumbered. Judah was outnumbered by the Assyrians. And Hezekiah makes this ironic statement. There are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God, Yahweh. Yahweh our Adonai. Yahweh speaking of his eminence and his covenantal presence. And Adonai speaking of his transcendence and his power. The Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. So it was in those difficult straits that the people of God learned that... The Lord their God was their all-sufficient strength. And I believe that's one of the reasons that the Lord allows us to experience spiritual warfare. We do not handle prosperity well. We just don't. In my prosperities, the psalmist said, I shall not be moved. There's a sense of uh, invincibility. It's a false invincibility, but it's a sense of that. When all of our I's are dotted and all of our T's are crossed and we're healthy and we're wealthy and we're entertained, we don't handle prosperity well. So in a very real sense, spiritual warfare is an ironic grace for every Christian. It makes something palatable to us that is not naturally palatable to us. And here's what it makes real to us. We are weak. We are needy. Even if you feel well this morning, even if you have money in the bank and all things are going well in your career and all things are going well in your family, all things are going well in your life, you are weak, you are needy in every situation that you face. You are weak and needy in every relationship that you have. You are weak and needy in every location God providentially places you, and spiritual warfare gives us clarity on that. Spiritual warfare is turned on its head by the living God as it drives us in our impotence and our desperation to the fount of all supply. And that's why we can see and say that It is a grace. Now, verse 11 begins to explain how this works. So, again, verse 10, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. It's not your might. We are impotent. We are desperate. We are weak. We are needy. We cannot stand against the forces of evil put on the whole armor of God. And so we've seen our adequacy in the warfare and our armor for the warfare. Now, this verb, put on, if you just learned that verb, you've learned a whole lot about the Christian life. Paul loves to use that verb. Uh, We saw that verb in Ephesians 4, in verses 22 to 24. In verse 22, he says, put off, and it's just the imagery of clothing, put off the old self, which he says is being corrupted by our deceitful desires. It's the old self in Adam. Adam was our representative, and, and, and we're born as a result in sin, in guilt, and corruption. But that old man has been crucified, and even though he rears his ugly head, Uh, He he has been brought underneath the dominion of Christ. And so we can put off the old self. Uh, That's our natural self. Uh, That's the path of least resistance. That's the self that is displayed 100% of the time when we're not walking in the Spirit. But we can put him off by the Spirit. Put off the old self. Be renewed in in the attitude of your mind, he says in verse 23. And then he says in verse Chapter 4, verse 24, put on the new self. Same verb that we see here. 
put on the new self, which is created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. It's, it's the verb that he uses in the sister letter, uh, Colossians, where he says in Colossians 3.12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, we're holy and beloved in the Father, he says, put on, put on tender mercies and kindness and meekness, bearing with one another in love. And then he says in Colossians 3.14, put on love, put on love. Paul recognizes in Christ and by the Spirit, every Christian has the divine resources to put on the new self. Uh, in Romans 13, 12, he uses that verb. He says, put on the armor of light. Put on the armor of light. And then two verses later, he explains what that armor of light is. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You put on the Lord Jesus Christ as if he is clothing. You are clothed in Jesus Christ. And, and of course, that means to be made new and added to your mind. It is renewing your mind by the word of God. It's walking in the spirit, recognizing your identity is in Jesus Christ. Put on Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he uses that verb. Put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So Paul uses that verb, put on, several times in his letters. It is critical we understand that the Christian life is about putting off the old self, which is corrupted by deceitful desires. It's being made new in the attitude of our minds, and it's putting on the new self. And here, it's putting on the whole armor of God. This is the only place in the Bible where we read that phrase, whole armor. Um, contextually, this means, and we're going to look at this more next week, it, it means all that we are in Jesus Christ. All the resources that we have because of our union in Jesus Christ. It's our new selves. You have to recognize, Paul would tell you this, it's the old self that opens us up to vulnerability. Every problem you have, now there are, there are providences that happen in our lives that are not our fault per se, difficult providences. But I would submit to you virtually every family problem you have outside of those unfortunate providences, those difficult providences, every family problem you have, every relational problem you have, every personal problem you have, you can, you can trace that back to the old self. Not putting off the old self and not putting on the new self. If you want to fix your marriage, if you want to fix the issues in your life, Paul says it's simple. If you're in Christ, you can put off the old self, you can renew your mind, and you can put on the new self. The old self opens us up to vulnerability. Paul says in Ephesians 4.22, it belongs to your former manner of life and it is corrupted by our deceitful desires. It's our deceitful desires that mess everything up. But as we regularly put on the armor of God, we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, we become well-suited for any battle, any spiritual warfare. Now, in keeping with this, the Old Testament... And Isaiah, in particular, depicts the Messiah, the Messiah who would come. By the time you get to Isaiah, of course, we see it as early as Genesis 3.15, but in, by the time you get to Isaiah, it's clear that the Messiah who is going to come and fix everything and vindicate the name of God and, and save the people of God and judge the enemies of God, this Messiah will be spirit-endowed, he will be fully God, and he will be fully man. For instance, uh, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, but he will sit on David's throne. He will be God. He will be man. Isaiah 11, uh, he will be, he will come from the stem of the stump of Jesse. He will be a shoot from Jesse, and yet later on in that passage, he will be the root of Jesse. 
He will be the God-man. This Messiah will come. He will come as our consummate warrior king, and he will fight and win the battle for his people. And in Isaiah 59, though, Isaiah tells us that the Lord looked and saw that there was no one to bring salvation for his people. There was no human king, no mere human, not even David, not even Moses could bring about ultimate salvation for the people of God. They needed saving themselves. So God looked, there was no one to save. And so Isaiah 59, 16, his own arm, his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate. He's speaking here of the Messiah, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And then this section ends with the the Lord's declaration that a redeemer will come to Zion to the repentant. Verse 20, the Lord himself is the one who is going to bring salvation, and he is the one that is described by Isaiah in this armor. So it's actually the Lord who goes out in battle and fights for the people of God. It's only in Jesus, Paul says, that we are more than conquerors. Why? It's because of the nature of our adversary. And that brings us to the final point here of this passage. We see our adversary in the warfare. And so uh, this passage has shown us our adequacy. It has shown us our armor. And we need to recognize how important this armor is. But in order to recognize how important it is, we need to consider our adversary in the battle. Notice in the second part of verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, next week, we're going to look more intently at those schemes. We're just kind of giving an overview here. But there are schemes. The devil knows where you are vulnerable. He knows your besetting sins. And he has a different scheme for every Christian. And he continues to repeat those schemes over and over again. He says... For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so the the need to stand, we're going to see here, is stressed. It's repeated three more times in this passage. And Paul gives them here the reason to stand based on the spiritual nature of the enemy. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, that boss, that co-worker, that spouse, that church member, that neighbor is not your real problem. You have misdiagnosed. We do not struggle against flesh and blood. Now, Paul is not saying that evil is not expressed through humans. Evil is often expressed, most often perhaps, expressed through human agency. Paul would have been very aware of that. Read 2 Corinthians 11 sometimes. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says he was flogged, he was beaten... He was stoned, and all of that not from the devil, from false brothers. That's how he describes them, false brothers, those who made profession of faith but were not truly converted. But what he's saying here is that when evil does take flesh and blood form, which is most often the case, there's a greater power behind it. That's what he's saying. There's a greater power behind what you see. And until we recognize that dimension of evil in our world, we will come to our fight 
under-resourced for battle. That's why many Christians live perpetually defeated lives. They come under-resourced for the battle. In other words, if the Bible is true, and it is, you, if you take this lightly, will not be able to withstand the arsenal aimed at you as a believer. You will not be able to withstand it if you take this lightly. We are in over our heads unless the Lord is helping us. And that's why it is absolutely foolish and unnecessary for Christians to have troubled marriages. They're troubled because we're coming to the battle under-resourced. But it's unnecessary because if you're a Christian, you have the armor of God to appropriate. Paul wants us to recognize that this enemy is dangerous. Now that word translated wrestle, it's the only time in the Bible that word is used. We do not wrestle. But it was used in extra uh, biblical Greek for actual wrestling, all right? The sport of wrestling. Um, Paul is using it here for a fierce battle with a spiritual enemy. And he lists four groups, if you'll notice, in this passage. He says rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, there's been a whole lot of ink spilled on trying to decipher and define what each of these mean. I think it's a, a fruitless exercise. Uh, you, you essentially have to go beyond Scripture to come to terms with any definitions here. So why is Paul stacking these terms on top of each other? I think he's stacking these terms to show us how formidable the enemy really is. It's a formidable enemy. Do not underestimate these enemies in the heavenly places. It is a spiritual battle. A battle. Unfortunately, in, in a Barna study that I observed, half, get this, half of those in this study identified as Christians. Now, I know if you identify yourself as a Christian, that can mean a thousand things in our culture. But in this study, they, they were just surveying those who identified as Christians. And, I, and I'm very aware that many who identify as a Christian don't even know what a Christian is. They couldn't tell you anything about the person and work of Jesus Christ. But in this study, they were, they were surveying those who professed to be Christians. And in this study, half said, the devil is not real. The devil is just a symbol, not a living being. Of course, that reflects a deeper issue in the church. And that deeper issue is a denial of the authority of Scripture. To be a Christian is to be under the authority of Scripture. To be a Christian is to recognize that all Scripture is God-breathed. Breathed out by God, which means, let me offer you this thought. The genealogy of Esau in Genesis 36 is as authoritative and as inspired as the Sermon on the Mount. The Apostle Paul's words are as authoritative as the red letters of Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. You're under the authority of the inerrant, infallible Word of God. And so to deny a personal devil is essentially to deny the authority of Scripture, which is essentially to deny the authority of God. Indeed, the devil's existence is attested in nine Old Testament books. Genesis, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, First Chronicles, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah, and get this, his existence is attested by every 
New Testament writer. The name used for him in Hebrew is the name Satan, which means accuser. He is our accuser. It can also mean adversary. In the New Testament, Satan is used 34 times. He is our accuser. We're going to talk more about that next week. Uh, the, the name that's used here in Ephesians 6 is the name the devil, uh, which means slanderer. Slanderer. Uh, he slanders. He lies. And when we slander, we're acting like our original father, the devil, Jesus said. Slander is a serious business. It's so devastating that the most powerful, malevolent, wicked being in the universe is named slanderer. That's how devastating the, uh, that sin is. Um, the devil is used, that name is used 60 times in the New Testament. And so the devil is used 60 times. Satan is used 34 times. It, it refers to the same being. It just speaks to two different methods. One, he accuses, and one, he slanders, and he lies. There are other New Testament names for him as well. For instance, in Revelation 20, verse 10, he is the accuser. In 1 Peter 5, verse 8, he is the adversary. In Revelation 9, 11, he is the angel of the bottomless pit, Apollyon. In Matthew 12, 24, he is Beelzebub. In 2 Corinthians 6, 15, he is Belial. In Revelation 12, 7, he is the dragon. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he is the god of this world. In Ephesians 2, verse 2, he is the prince of the power of the air. In John 12, 31, he is the prince of this world. In Revelation 20, verse 2, he is the ancient serpent. In Matthew 4, verse 3, he is the tempter. We need all of these names to describe the comprehensive nature of his evil. Why? To scare us into submission and dependency on our divine resources. If you're not scared into dependency, you will fight this battle in and of yourselves. And you are done at that moment. John Blanchard says, we are opposed by a living intelligent, resourceful, and cunning enemy who can, get this, outlive the oldest Christian, outwork the busiest, outfight the strongest, and outwit the wisest. Of course, biblically, there is a triple tyranny with which every believer has to deal. We saw that in Ephesians 2. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So the world uh, refers to the world opposed, the, the system, the evil system opposed to God. The world has always been opposed to God. Now in our country, we've seen the world become even appear to be more opposed. It's only because God is withdrawing his common grace. And now the world is showing itself for what it really is. The world has always been opposed to God. Uh, the, the flesh is that old self which has been crucified in Jesus Christ but still rears its ugly head. And so the world has been crucified and the flesh has been crucified by Christ. And yet in the interim between uh, Christ's cross and his return, the remnants of both are still very present. We have to deal with. But the third foe is the devil. That's who Paul is dealing with here who is a fallen angel who presides over the kingdoms of this world. Of course, they are related. The devil's strategy is to use the world and to use your flesh to throw our lives into devastation. And his name gives us insight into his principal way of working. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled in those in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of God in the face of Christ. The devil works through temptations. He works through uh, accusations. And he works through lies. He does not make good people bad. 
He works with existing material. All right? He plays on what he already has, what we already have in us. And so there is more to the battle, as we've already recognized, than flesh and blood enemies. But it's our own sin and the sin of others that the devil exploits. The devil merely draws upon what is already present in us to fan the flame of our deceitful desires. If he is involved, he is working with what's already there. All right? Like a kid with Play-Doh. The kid doesn't create that Play-Doh. He, he, he molds and shapes what's already there. And that's why Paul said earlier, don't give the devil a foothold. Don't give him an opportunity. And spiritual warfare has existed since the garden. We know that. The events leading to the fall of the historical Adam were the very inception, the beginning of this battle. Satan twisted God's word. The first doctrine ever denied in Scripture was, you shall not surely die. The doctrine of divine judgment was the first doctrine denied in the Bible, in the garden. And Satan challenged God's authority in the garden, and he lied to our first parents. And after the fall, God promised there would be continued spiritual warfare. He says there would be enmity between the seed of the woman, and the seed of the woman ultimately is Christ and those in Christ, and the seed of the serpent, those who are not in Christ. There would be enmity between those two seeds, but there would be ultimate victory because the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. And we know that that victory came through a cross and a resurrection. Now, how did that happen? Well, the, the throne of the devil's dominion is our guilt. And when Jesus Christ took our guilt and died for the guilty and was raised reversing the verdict on our guilt from con condemned to justified, the devil was defeated in principle. And yet, in God's providence, he is still present. And so the devil is like a condemned criminal on death row. He is living on borrowed time. And though he is still a roaring lion, he's mortally wounded. We need to realize that. This means that his counteroffensive is hopeless, even as it is fierce. It's hopeless, but it's fierce, and hence the necessity of the armor of God. Now, next week, we're going to look more at what this entails. But suffice to say, when you get to the final part of this letter, uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it's tempting to think Paul has changed the subject. After all, he's been talking about uh, the importance of unity in the church. Uh, he's been talking about the importance of getting rid of bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander, being kind to one another, forgiving one another. He's talked about the importance of, of, of family, wives submitting to their husbands as unto the Lord, and husbands loving their wives as, as Christ loved the church, and children obeying their parents in the Lord, for this is right, and fathers and mothers bringing up their children in the training and the instruction in the Lord. It, it's tempting to think that Paul now has left that discussion on everyday Christianity, but actually that's exactly what he's talking about. He's saying, you know, all that talk about the church, all that talk about family and, and unity and parenting... It's all big, one spiritual warfare. That's what he's saying. There really is an enemy. You really are spiritually vulnerable. But by grace, you have been properly armed. By grace, you have been properly armed. Jesus' cross, his resurrection, have spelled Satan's doom. His second 
Advent will seal his doom. So his doom has been spelled. One day it will be sealed. But in the meantime, we live in the interim, don't we? Between the already and the not yet. And in the already but the not yet, we must put on the whole armor of God. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is every Christian's calling. Let us be wise. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the all-sufficient work of Jesus. And yet we do have responsibility in the Christian life. It's not a let go and let God. We're called to let the word of Christ richly indwell us. We're called to be filled with the Spirit. We're called to walk in love, to walk as children of light, to walk in wisdom. We're called to put off the old self. We're called to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. We're called to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Indeed, we are called to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. That is our responsibility in the warfare. And given that, we are invulnerable because of our all-sufficient adequacy in Jesus I pray that every struggling Christian here today could realize that could realize that their struggle is not against flesh and blood and that they would flee to the Lord Jesus Christ the only one greater the only one greater than the rulers and the authorities the powers of darkness and father if there's any here today that have never trusted in Jesus I pray that they could recognize that their father is the devil as Jesus said, that the God of this age is their ruler, but you have made provision for their redemption. You have made provision for their redemption from the principalities and powers, from their sin, that you will deliver them from the power of darkness and you will transfer them into the kingdom of the son of your love in whom we have redemption by his blood, the forgiveness of sins if they will humble themselves and recognize and confess their sin before a holy God and repent of that sin by grace and trust in Jesus alone for their salvation. Lord, I pray that someone here, many here, would be so moved to humble themselves and trust in Jesus today. And Lord, I pray that they would feel comfortable enough to come talk to me and ask me any questions they might have about what it means to be a Christian. Father, we ask this today in the name, the matchless name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.